Good evening, and again, welcome. It's good to see each of you here this evening as we look into our topic tonight, um, Science and Faith Real Answers. Will the first Adam please stand upright? As we begin this lecture, I'd like to ask that you would bow your heads with me for a word of prayer again. Father God, we thank you for your blessings. Thank you that we could be here and learn how, um, how science and the Bible help us to see you. I pray that you would bless me as a communicator to share what I have prepared here in a clear, powerful way. Give me strength of mind to do this. And um, may your spirit work on our hearts to see how relevant this is to our lives today. We thank you for your goodness. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. And uh, before we get into our health topic here, just one more note about the card. It's to help me get some feedback of how, how, how I'm doing on this, um, on this series. But tonight, I want to take a look at the Eden diet and weight loss as a health nugget before we get into this. Um, fascinating stuff here. We've been looking at the idea that Jesus... In his, the way he created things was uh, for not to take pleasure away from us, to actually give us pleasure. It is a thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I am come that they might have life and might have it more abundantly. When we think about uh, food, we have to consider that um, do, does food matter to God? It does. In fact, it was food that got us in trouble in the first place, if you stop and think about it, when Genesis um, 2, verse 17, and when the woman saw the tree that it was good for food, she did take of the fruit and did eat. So uh, as we consider food, sometimes it's a touchy subject for people. I want to be able to convey to you ideas that will be encouraging, enlightening, and, and will bless you. So... Um, Genesis 1.29 tells us, God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. God's original plan, God's original diet, we could say was a vegetarian diet. Now, um, as we consider this, I want to make it clear to you, as we talk about the Eden diet and God's original design with this, that biblically God does not require the, the Eden diet. He does not require that of us. Um, but what we want to see is, was God's original plan um, superior to what we have today? And so we're going to take a look at some of that. Uh, I should also qualify and clarify that when we talk about the Eden diet, um, very specifically, it was actually nuts and, and fruit, nuts, seeds, and fruit. After the fall, God added the herbs of the field, what we would classify as vegetables. So um, how does this, what does this have to do with weight loss? Well, when it comes to weight loss, there are a few keys to consider. Um, I told you in a previous lecture that um, exercise is only a minor part of weight loss. Everybody, when you talk about losing weight, most people think, well, I need to get on a treadmill and start exercising. That's actually not your first line of, of defense. What you really want to do is understand where the, the main battle is. Um, one weight training friend of mine um, here in this province told me once that um, diet is likely 90% of the issue. 
90% of the issue. That's incredible. Um, but when we talk about diet and weight loss, when we talk about dieting, pretty much everybody knows dieting, to, to go on a diet, does not work. Why? Because before long, you're going to give in to your hunger. You're going to give in to your appetite. And, and, uh, and it tends to be trying to minimize um, the calories and you just never get full and you're always hungry and there's a point where you just say enough and you go back to what you've been enjoying. Um, but the key to, proper, uh, to a proper diet for weight loss is to stay filled without taking on more calories. It's easy to achieve when you understand one principle in all of this and that principle is fiber. Um, that, that nutrient, it is a nutrient, fiber is, uh, I heard a lecture years ago entitled Fiber, the Fabulous Forgotten Friend. We always think of fiber typically in terms of uh, relieving constipation, but it does so much more. It is an incredible nutrient, and um, we're going to talk a little bit about it here. One of the biggest things that fiber does for us is it bulks up our food. It fills us. It, um, it gives our body a sense of, our stomach, a sense of, I'm full. If you think of your stomach, when it is full and it's stretched a little bit, it actually sends a hormone to your brain called leptin. That hormone uh, tells your brain, oh, I'm full. And um, fiber is great at doing that. A stretched stomach is a happy stomach. You don't want to overstretch it, obviously. Um, but if you can have something like fiber filling that stomach that will actually stay with you for hours, you will be less likely to snack and add on more calories in the day. Um, on top of that, most fiber foods are actually high in nutrients and low in calories. Oh, that sounds good. Because a lot of the foods that people these days are getting... Um, you know, putting on weight with are not so high in nutrients, but they're high, they're calorie dense, as we would say. Um, so how much fiber do you actually need per day? The average North American gets about five to 10 grams of fiber today, each day. What we actually need is 35 to 50 grams of fiber per day. And this is fascinating because this is not a starvation diet, as you will see. Now, the big question is, where do we get our fiber? Well, as it turns out, fiber is only found in plant foods. You will not find fiber in meats, in dairies, or in processed foods. Some processed foods may have an ingredient called inulin. It is more or less synthetic fiber, and there are reasons why I would caution against it, but do your research. Um, but there is... The fiber is going to be, to bulk up your food, is going to be in your plant-based foods. So let's illustrate this, give you a sense of how this works. So you have two egg muffins here, a sausage, cup, a glass of orange juice, and, um, and you want to know the, the amount of fiber here, you're looking at four grams of fiber. Now, and that's pretty much all in the bread. That's where the fiber is. Grains are a good source of, of fiber. Um, but let's say that um, like, let's ask, how many calories would this meal give you? Well, it's going to be around 1,000 calories. 
Now, if you're shooting for, let's say, around 40 grams of fiber per day, how many times are you going to have to eat this meal to, um, to get your 40 grams of fiber? Ten times? Uh, uh, now we're talking 10,000 calories. There are people that do this, folks. And there are people that do this. So let's, rather than just scrapping this thing entirely, let's just replace one of these. Let's get rid of the sausage, replace one of these. And I'm not sure why this illustration actually encourages us to um, replace the um, orange juice with the milk because neither of them really have the fiber. But let's place this, replace this one sausage with a bowl of oatmeal with apples in it, with an orange, a handful of almonds, a handful of blackberries, and a banana. This would come up to be about 22 grams of fiber. Now, does this look like this would fill you up? Does this look like a starvation diet? No. How many calories? This, too, is about 1,000 calories. So how many times would you have to eat this meal to uh, get your 40 grams of fiber in a day? Just twice. And that would be 2,000 calories. Could you lose weight on 2,000 calories a day? You could. You actually could. So um, would, it, would it fill you up? Yes. Now, if, if you were ambitious with this, and you say, I, I want to go further. I'm not happy with just this. I want to go further. And you actually take this out. Can you imagine replacing with this much more? You're looking at a big meal. This is not a starvation diet. And it will keep you for hours. It will, it will, keep, it will stay in your stomach for hours so that you will not be um, hungry for hours. You won't be snacking and adding on more calories. And, and it's also a great plan when you understand it right, it works very well for diabetes as well because it can, the, these complex carbohydrates are slow-release carbohydrates that can help regulate the blood sugar. Um, and, you know, there's some things you have to take into consideration with this, but the, the benefit of the, of the Eden diet is, is beautiful. What God designed with this diet and the potential it has to take, care of, uh, to, to take care of issues of obesity. Um, I've run a program before called the Full Plate Diet where we teach this sort of stuff and it's amazing to watch people in eight weeks losing weight just by eating. They're not even getting out and exercising. So um, I would like to encourage you to start paying attention to how much fiber you're getting a day. And this is just the, back, the backwards of dieting. You're thinking, am I getting too many calories? Am I getting too much salt? Am I getting too much fat? Here is actually positive. Instead of a negative count, you're saying, am I getting enough fiber? And you start looking, looking, make sure you're getting enough fiber. You're going to find out that you're going to be eating well. And, uh, and you can start just powering up your meals, making sure you're getting more fiber. Okay. So, our topic tonight, will the first Adam please stand upright? You know, as we've come out night by night, we've been looking at evidences in um, biochemistry, astronomy, genetics, and biology, um, evidences that, that we did not come about as we are oftentimes taught in our schools. 
But perhaps the debate is most relevant when it comes to, and is most crucial when it comes to our origins, the origin of man. Did we come from some chimp-like monkey? Or are we the special creation of a creator God? You know, who you are really matters. If you know, we want to know where we came from, and maybe it'll help us to know where we're going. Who you are really matters. I was astonished a few years ago to read a quote from National Geographic that said, um, evolutionary theory is such a dangerously wonderful and far-reaching view of life that some people find it unacceptable despite the vast body of supporting evidence. Now, what I'm going to take issue with here, and there's a few things I could take issue with in the quote, but the one I'm going to really take issue with is the fact that it calls evolutionary theory dangerously wonderful and far-reaching view. Um, I'm going to come back to that, but our view of our origins, where we came from, does have a huge, plays a huge difference on our view of others and our own destiny. If we are mere animals um, competing for survival, why do I even need to consider um, and, and look after and care for, be concerned about my fellow man? Uh, and if after this life there's absolutely nothing to hope for or dread, then uh, what difference does it make how I conduct my life? Who you are, where you came from, makes a huge difference. It, it matters. But if there is a God and I am made in his image, then uh, I, I have a responsibility toward him. And I am accountable to him. And some people find this actually quite unsavory, quite, um, they can't endure this idea of responsibility and accountability toward God, so they may do things like deny creation and study out evolution and convince themselves of evolution. Um, so just what does the evidence tell us about human history? Um, there's actually some, some surprises here, but first, uh, we're going to strap on your seatbelt. We've got a lot of material to go through. And by all means, there's no way I'm covering everything here tonight. There's just too much on this, on this matter. Uh, I can't look at every uh, example of every um, uh, hominid you know, in our ancestry that's claimed so. But we're just going to look at a sample of some things tonight. But there are two lines of argument. One is genetics and the other is, is the fossil evidence. And we're going to start with the fossil evidence. Um, but if we go back to Darwin's day, he conjectured in the, in the book, The Descent of Man, in 1871, uh, that we arose from Africa. When you looked at the, the two populations of the, monk, of the great apes, you know, the orangutans in, in Asia and the, the, the apes and the gorillas and stuff in Africa, he said, well, we have the most in common with, what, uh, with the African apes, so we must have... Uh, must have evolved from them. He had no hard evidence at the time. Uh, others argued for the Asia origins, and uh, and then around in his in his time, then Java man came along, um, discovered in 1891 by the Dutch physician uh, Eugene Dubois in Trinil, Java, uh, Pithecanthropus erectus. Dubois found a, a skull cap. And, and this was in, so this is in Asia, you know, in, in Java, in Indonesia. Found a skull cap. A year later, he found a human femur and uh, two, molar, uh, two molar teeth. Six years later, he found uh, a, a large premolar tooth. 
and all of this within 50 feet of each other. And so he assumed they were all from the same specimen. But for 30 years, he concealed the fact that in 1888 and in 1890, Dubois had also found two unmistakably human skulls at approximately the same level of, um, of the sediments, of the sedimentary layers. Um, and an expedition in 1907 to the same area revealed that both human and Pithecanthropus uh, species lived in the same area in around 500 years ago. So it doesn't look like this is a good um, precursor to humans. If we, you know, if they're living alongside us and this is only 500 years ago, write that off as a, um, as a early man, uh, as an ancestor. But keep in mind that also in Darwin's day, um, before Java man was discovered, um, the only real evidence that we had or the only ancestor we claimed or talked about was Neanderthal. And um, Neanderthals were found in Germany and in France. Um, and artists oftentimes uh, depict them looking rather like dumbed down humans. Um, but what's fascinating is when you start seeing some of the more up-to-date renditions, up-to-date um, uh, caricatures of them or what they interpretations of the fossils they begin to look a lot more human just simply unkept uh, such as this man or um, this this girl you know you just think if you combed her hair out put on some modern clothing you would never know she's a Neanderthal she looks fully human today these are actually accepted as uh, as fully human by many paleoanthropologists. Um, they actually have a larger skull, um, stockier, larger brained than modern humans. They, um, they have the bent over caricature that we're all familiar with, basically because the early Neanderthals, the early finds of Neanderthals, apparently were of men that were um, aged and may have had rickets or uh, arthritis. Um, but Today, they are classified as homo sapiens. Neanderthals are known to have used jewelry, um, musical instruments. They had uh, paints. They were capable of full language. Um, they buried their dead in caves. So what Darwin saw as an ancestor to man, or to um, modern man, homo sapiens, is now seen as fully man by, man, by many um, and then in 1924, it seemed that Darwin's theory of origins of, from Africa got a boost when um, the first Australopithecine uh, monkeys or uh, skeletons were found and discovered in Africa, uh, giving credence, again, to that Darwin's thought that we came out of Africa, not Asia. These were dated to a one to two million years old. The Australopithecine um, or southern ape fossils have turned up in Africa in various places. There's Australopithecine africanus in the 1920s and 1950s, and then there's Australopithecine uh, afarensis discovered in the 1970s and dated to about 3.5 million years old. The most famous Australopithecine afarensis is, uh, was named Lucy. Um, she was found by, by Donald, Donald Johansson in 1974 in Ethiopia. Uh, this has been one of the more complete fossil finds of, 
of uh, hominid, what we call a hominid, um, but um, it's only about 40% complete. And it's interesting that museums frequently display Lucy as standing upright and, um, and very human-like hands and very human-like feet. But the original skeleton, which is what's read here, um, had no feet. You can see that in the whites here, the, the feet were not present. There's only about 40% of the skeleton ever found. Neither were the hands. But later finds of Australopithecine afarensis specimens um, that did include some feet showed that the feet were very monkey-like with the opposable big thumb or almost opposable big thumb, suggesting that she um, may very well have been a tree dweller. And uh, um, also... The hands were uh, highly curved, muscular, uh, more fit for arboreal, tree-dwelling um, existence. Her legs carried a high-carrying angle, as humans do. We, ha we have a high-carrying angle. Instead of the, legs, the femurs coming down like this, they're at an angle here, and that allows us to walk forward without going back and forth. We can keep our center of balance. If our legs were wider, we'd have to kind of wobble as some some primates have to do. Um, and this is oftentimes cited as evidence that she was ground-dwelling and she walked upright. But many tree-dwelling um, monkeys have that high-carrying angle as well. It helps them climb through the trees. And um, she also had no locking mechanisms in her knees, no kneecaps. So um, she had... Uh, the, there's actually still a lot of debate whether her hips were her hips human-like or ape-like. Did they facilitate walking upright, upright like humans or were they ape-like? I have seen literature to both um, conclusions arguing that no, they are chimp-like and they could not have, she could not have possibly walked upright the way we do. I've seen others that say no, they were um, very, uh, very human-like. It's a little confusing because her hip was actually, the, the fossil find of her hip is crushed. And so piecing it together and making sure it's pieced together right has, has not always, has been a matter of interpretation at times. Um, so, and just last month, National Geographic, BBC, New York Times, many others were publishing articles that it seems that uh, careful analysis of her bones suggest that Lucy fell from a tree. Her death, she fell, she died by falling out of a tree, which would suggest that she is a tree-dwelling uh, monkey. And you see the skeleton here has her walking upright. Um, you can read the articles, you'll find that there are people who disagree with it, but it is interesting, uh, an interesting thought to consider in this whole debate. Um, if, if she is indeed a tree-dwelling animal, it, it would not fare all that well for her being one of our ancestors. Um, perhaps more recently, more celebrated is from Africa, as well as the Ardipithecus ramidus, affectionately known as um, Ardi. Um, discovered in 1994 by Tim White and his colleagues, um, this ape is considered a root species, meaning um, you go back to the very beginnings of primates 4.4 million years ago. Um, but when you look at um, pictures, it's also a very, not a complete fossil as we would hope, but a pieced together 
fossil, just a few, you know, maybe 40%, 30% of the, of the skeleton, but you see that the depictions they have of her now show her to be very ape-like. The, the, the feet, the hands, the long arms, very ape-like. Um, but they emphasize hopeful traits that may this, this could have been one of the very early um, hominids in our ancestry. Um, but it's still, the, the fossils are lacking much. Um, though, other, though many have said she was not a chimp, um, she does have the ape-like feet and almost opposing big toe. Even Owen Lovejoy, who has spent a lot of time with Lucy's skeleton um, and has worked with, with the skeleton there, believes that Ardy was a tree-dwelling and ground-dwelling ape. And also, like Lucy, because her pelvis is crushed, there is debate whether or not she walked upright. Um, in all this, listen to an older quote, and I, admittedly, this is a 35-year-old quote um, from Richard Leakey, um, but we'll, we'll bring its relevance here in a few minutes. He says, biologists would dearly like to know how modern apes, modern humans, and the various ancestral hominids have evolved from a common ancestor. Unfortunately, the fossil record is somewhat incomplete, as far as the hominids are concerned, and it is all but blank for the apes. The best we can hope for is that more fossils will be found over the next few years, which will fill, fill the present gaps in the evidence. David Pilbeam, a well-known expert in human evolution, comments wryly, if you brought in a smart scientist from another discipline and showed him the meager evidence um, we ha we've got, he'd surely say, forget it. There's not enough to go on. Um, while this is a 35-year-old quote, not a lot has changed. There isn't a lot of uh, fossils that we have of hominids, of ancestors to humans. Um, likewise, a year later, Richard Lewinton uh, had said, and we quoted him last night elsewhere, something else he had said, but he said, despite the excited and optimistic claims that have been made by some paleontologists, no fossil hominid species can be established as our direct ancestor. And there are some that said, oh, well, we think this was uh, another branch in the, in the tree of, of uh, the family tree of humans and apes. Um, but none are said, this is our direct ancestor. That is still true today. Um, more recently, Bill, Bill Kimball um, said, we, the more we know, the, com the more complex the story gets. Scientists used to think Homo sapiens evolved from Neanderthals. Um, but now we know that both species lived, in this, lived during the same time period and that we did not come from Neanderthals. Now, of course, he's quoting, quoted from 19, or 2007. Um, he's has the opinion, has the view that um, they are two distinct species, but there are many in the field that do consider them Neanderthal and, and Homo sapiens to be one and the same. But not much has changed. Bill Kimball admits three years later in an article in the Smithsonian that uh, about the finds of Artie, he, he says, we didn't have much at all before Artie. So, Whereas people were saying 35 years ago, we don't have much to go on. Now, six years ago, he said, we didn't have much to go on before Artie. 
And then there are others that are in that same article. Rick Potts said, understanding what is a great ape and what is a hominid is tough. In other words, we don't have a lot to go on with Artie, Australopithecines, or, or Lucy, or whatever. It's tough to know whether you're just looking at an ape or looking at something that is actually considered a hominid. There's a lot of interpretation that can go on there. I'll come back to the interpretation in a few minutes. Um, but I would like to share with you uh, another fossil find that we will deal with in another night when we talk more about um, uh, dating methods. Uh, many specimens are still hotly debated, such as the skull K&M ER 1470. Richard Leakey's team found it in uh, 1972 in, in Lake Turkana, Kenya. While it appears to be fully human, its dated, uh, its dated age seems to be wholly out of range for what is expected. Um, and we'll touch on this later, but basically, if it is fully human and if its date that they have settled on is accurate, it would predate pretty much all the hominids um, that, that we try, people try to cite. So if it predates it, then these others were not in our lineage. We didn't evolve from them. We were already there. Um, now, something that happens sometimes, you may see, is that skulls are lined up in the order of... Um, their progression, so that they look from, from ape-like, and you see the long um, angled face here, to more human-like, and the shorter flat face. And, and there's this evolutionary um, progression that is illustrated in these. You have to be careful with these, because many times uh, a problem with this lineup is that while it may look like a good lineup here, the problem is if you were to actually put the date on each of these, they're, they're shuffled. They're not in, in the order that they should be, not the youngest um, consistently down to the oldest. There's, there's, a different, um, there's different ages. So they actually had to move things out of their, their timeline to make the, make the sequence look right. Um, it's out of, out of step, out of order with the fossil record. Um, but the second problem with this whole issue of the skulls is that um, when you look at the comparisons, the amount of variety in human and primate skulls represents um, a variety that is less than is manifested in dog breeds. And if you remember a few nights ago, we talked about the fact that dog breeds are all one species. Domesticated dogs, whether they're Chihuahuas, Great Danes, German Shepherds, um, Pugs, you know, whatever, St. Bernard's, they're all considered one species. So you have an incredible amount of variety in this one uh, species. And there's far less variety that is ex exhibited in the primates and the, the uh, human skulls. So who is to say that the lineup and the varieties that we see don't actually represent just the, a built-in genetic variety? It doesn't necessarily equate to a lineage, a progression of evolution. Um, so the fossil evidence, that is a very brief tour. I'll leave you to study more on it. Um, but what about the genetic evidence? 
You know, when we, when we look at certain species of animals, it is clear that we seem to have the most in common with primates. First year I ever did this series, um, one of the people attending, I went and I was visiting with them on their farm and they had a pet monkey. I don't remember what kind, but I do remember that when she brought the monkey over to me, she's, the monkey's on, on her shoulder and, um, and the monkey starts, starts fidgeting through fishing through my beard. She says, oh, he likes you. <laughs> wow, okay. But what really struck me was these long fingers and those fingernails, and you can, all, you can see, wow, you can see why you know, there, there's, there's a lot of similarity between humans and primates. Um, the, we have to admit there's a lot of similarity there. Um, the question is whether or not we evolved from them. But um, science tells us and and articles tell us these days that genetically we have from 96 to 98 percent um, identical genes to chimpanzees. We are genetically we are 96 to 98 percent uh, identical to chimpanzees. Uh, Nature magazine publishes, uh, you know, and others. Um, it really, when you understand what's going on here, it's really meaningless except for the perception that it has of evolution, that we did evolve from them, the relationship there. Um, first off, it's not based on the whole package of, of the DNA, of the genomes from both specimens, both species. This is after portions of each of the genomes have been removed and eliminated um, for comparison. Uh, the human genome, as we've said before, contains about three billion letters from your mother, three billion from your father, so you have two sets. And um, uh, so three billion letters, 96, 98, say 98% of three billion still leaves you with 60 million dif differences, letters-wise. Yeah, that, that's a good bit of room for some, some variation, some differences. Um, the chin, and what's more, the chimpanzee genome is six to seven percent larger than the human genome. So it, what, what did they choose to use in this comparison? That's hard to say, hard to know. And one of the more um, recent genetic arguments that I has, was actually, I was confronted with a few years ago when I did the series was the, the problem was called the fusion of chromosome two. Humans have 46 chromosomes, 23 pairs, you know, 23 from your mother, 23 from your father, sets of, of chromosomes. Gorillas, chimpanzees, orangutans have 48. So it would appear that um, one, of the, one of the chromosomes, or two of the chromosomes, have actually fused together and... Um, to, to make a human. It, it would appear that we have evolved from a fusion, a, a genetic fusion of the chromosomes uh, from the apes. Um, my prediction on this, at the time, it, yeah, it was news to me. I'd, I actually had not been confronted with this, and I you know, tried to take a, a serious look at it. And um, I predicted at the time, even though I didn't have a really good answer at the time, that this probably, we would find over time, this represents... Um, that this chromosome is not a true fusion. And I have seen articles to that effect. Um, but something else that is more uh, noteworthy is that 
This and other things, when you see the media say, oh, a missing fossil, a missing link has been found, you know, our missing ancestors, um, you will find that the media oftentimes portrays things very confidently. But when you go back to the scientific papers from which they're getting their news and read the, the published papers themselves, you will find the language is much more tentative. It's, it's like this suggests, or it may be that, is, it's much more tentative. They're not so bold with the, with the scientific papers. So when the, when the news seems to give you these very bold statements, find out the sources, and if you're up to reading, go and read the, the sources and just see what the facts really are. It's worth checking out sometimes. Now, what does the Bible say, though, about our origins? It is definitely contrasted to um, us evolving from the apes. Genesis chapter 1, 26. And God said, uh, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowls of the air. Over the fish of the sea and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Uh, this, according to the Bible, happened somewhere around 6,000 years ago. So what evidence do we have that this story is true and reliable and accurate? Well, if we start on the genetics level, something called mitochondrial DNA. We've talked about how DNA is housed in the nucleus of, of cells, but there's also snippets of DNA in these little organelles in the cells called mitochondria. Um, mitochondria is passed on through the women in each generation, and it is supposedly non-mutating. Um, but an empirical study uh, uh, years ago on the mutation rates of the mitochondrial DNA, this is in, published in Nature Genesis, um, was aiming to calibrate the true rate of mutations in mitochondrial DNA, um, and it yielded a surprising result. Rather than comparing this DNA in the mitochondrial between humans and chimpanzees, they decided, well, let's just see what happens if we, if we compare between um, mother, daughter, granddaughter, you know, a few generations of humans. And so they, as they did that and began looking through this, um, the study found a common ancestor to be calibrated somewhere around 6,500 years ago. Uh, oops. Um, this was seen as um, clearly incompatible with uh, the known age of modern man, and so it was thrown out. And um, before you get too, uh, too hard on them for that, we all have a tendency when we see evidence that doesn't fit our model to throw it out. Uh, we, we may, I see creationists getting onto the, crea the evolutionists for throwing out data that doesn't match their model. Uh, I would challenge you, I would bet you do the same every day. We, we, there are things that we don't notice, we don't pay attention to because it doesn't fit our our paradigm, the way we think things are. So we need to be cautious with that and careful, but in this case, they threw that data out. It would actually be quite consistent with the biblical story. 6,500 years is pretty close to 6,000 years ago. Um, and evolutionary anthropology hasn't been very successful in their quest to find um, ancestors to modern man. Uh, then do we have any evidence as to where we actually really came from. 
Well, we can... We have, we have this as evidence. Um, the Bible does offer us some answers um, to conform, that conform to science, what we know of science. Um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Now, if you step back from this, if you're here as a Christian, you know this story, I want to ask you for a moment to step back from this and look at this from a skeptic's viewpoint. God formed man from the dust of the ground, and as the story goes on, he took a rib from, from Adam's side to make Eve. You have to admit that the story sounds mythical. I mean, if you're looking at this from a scientific standpoint, it sounds pretty mythical. Um, but... Um, I want to show you some, some neat things about science, stuff that was under my nose in high school biology that I never even considered, as well as some more uh, modern findings as well. Um, I'll tell you right now that uh, science tells us, this story is actually very consistent with science, and here's why. Science tells us that man must have produced the first woman. It could not have been the woman producing the first man. And, and that is contrary to everything we see as women that give birth these days. But when you go back and look at this story and compare it with genetics, we find out that um, man has something that a woman does not genetically. And this is one of those things I was taught in high school biology and I never caught it until later. Man has a Y chromosome. The two chromosomes that uh, deal with gender, the X and Y chromosomes, X is female, Y is male. Um, a woman's, you know, every woman here tonight, your, uh, your uh, gender set is XX chromosomes. Men, yours is X and Y. So a man could produce a woman because he does have an X chromosome. A woman could not produce a man because she does not have a Y chromosome. And I don't know about you, but that's, that's pretty neat to me. I was just like, wow, that's amazing. But um, more than that, um, the Bible's description of God taking a rib from Adam's side to make Eve, well, in our modern day, it doesn't make, uh, it's, it's starting to look more like, okay, this could be done. We can take a single cell and culture that cell and grow an entire organism. They've done that with sheep before. We can clone animals based on one cell. I told you the other night that every a cell in your body has the complete genetic code for everything in your body. So, okay, we can clone an animal. Uh, we can clone something. God could have cloned Eve, just making the difference of the, you know, changing the X chromosome. Um, but a rib? That does sound a little mythical. And I have heard Christians tell me, well, um, Adam must have been uh, missing a rib. And that, well, that's, I've heard other people say that's why men have one less rib than, than women. No, no. Adam's loss was not permanent in this regard, and here's why. Uh, as I was preparing this series in the, fir the first time, eight years ago, someone sent me something. I read this article of a physician who, unfortunately, he had had a head-on collision with a semi. And he had to have over 50 reconstructive surgeries on his face. And he's right, as he's writing this article, he describes how after one of these surgeries, he's laying in his bed, and um, in his hospital bed, 
his surgeon comes in and he says, Doc, I notice you keep taking from the same incision back here. Aren't you going to run out of rib? And the, doctor looks a little, the surgeon looks a little puzzled and says, oh, well, actually, as long as I keep the membrane intact, you'll regenerate new rib. And I remember at the time, eight years ago, thinking, man, that sounds too, almost too good to be true. So I did what I normally do with these kind of things. I typed it into Google to see what would come up. I really wish I had taken screenshots back then because today everybody else is on it. But back then, the only, thing, the only hits I got were medical journals, one after another, showing at four to 12 months, you generate a rip if you leave the membrane intact. And the, the fascinating thing to me about this is that to date, the rib is the only bone in our body that we're aware of that regenerates, that can regenerate. So all of a sudden, the story of God creating Adam and Eve doesn't sound so mythical anymore, does it? There is the supernatural element, God breathing life into dust to make Adam, taking a rib from Eve to or from Adam to, to make Eve. But we see that even with God's supernatural hand, there are still things that are very consistent with science. I'm sure Moses wasn't aware of these things. I don't think he designed it this way. I think he was relating what God had told him, God had shown him. Um, so, and one of the evidence, there's one other evidence that is substantial and is a story that has been told and in, in found in cultures all over the world. While it doesn't speak so much of creation itself, it is a story that is documented by over 220 uh, examples in different cultures, from anywhere from uh, Australia to Alaska, China to the, to the Middle East. Um, and that story is Noah's flood. Uh, an ancient story strikingly sim similar in details across the globe um, to what we find written in the Bible in Genesis chapter 6 through 10. Uh, this is an indication to me that this, there is something to this story. It's not just a myth. Um, and in future nights, we'll cover the geologic evidences for this flood. For now, I'm just bringing this up as an evidence that um, perhaps the Bible itself is not written as a myth. It is history. But if the Bible is correct, then the implications of its record on our origins is profound. Uh, if the Bible account of the flood is uh, found throughout cultures suggesting that the Bible is reflecting history rather than myth, um, perhaps its claim on our origins of man is historical and accurate. You know, there are two other indicators of the truth of Genesis 1 and 2. Um, oh, those are two indicators. But when we come back to this quote from National Geographic, evolutionary theory is such a dangerously wonderful and far-reaching view of life that some people find it unacceptable despite the vast body of supporting evidence. Um, I actually have to disagree with this uh, and say it is not dangerously wonderful. It may be dangerous, but not wonderful. Because John, 1 John chapter 1 so it shows us something even more exalted than that we came forth from the apes. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. God says to you and I 
is you weren't made in the image of apes. You were made in my image, in God's image, he says. And God not only made the, the universe, as we see, and he, he, he made, um, he spoke the universe into existence. But not only did he do that, but when he made man, he didn't just speak us into existence. He got down, he got personal, he got dirty. He got his hands dirty in forming man from the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. God got personal. He didn't just speak us into existence. But it gets so much better when we think about this. Behold what manner of love the Father has given us that we should be called the sons of God. After man fell and plunged this world into sin and suffering and death, God has, uh, had, had a blessing beyond comprehension. The same God who made us in his own image became incarnate in man's image to save us from eternal ruin. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, this gift of God to us is an eternal gift. When Jesus came up from the grave, rose from the dead, he, rose, he, he was resurrected fully human, fully divine. He is human. He is one of us. It's an eternal gift God gave to us. It is a gift he gave to no other race. Jesus is human. And he has... He has forever bound himself to us with cords of love that can never be broken. And this gift shows us that no matter how weak we are, we are valued and dear in God's eyes. If we were merely primates that evolved from our millions of years of survival of the fittest, then our value as humans vanishes. Um, as mere primates, we are no more valuable than our fitness and how well we can contribute to society. And that has serious consequences. Um, 1998, Eric Harris, Dylan Claybold, murdered their classmates and teachers at Columbine High School. The nation was shocked, but they really shouldn't have been, for these two men were not acting in a vacuum. These men were not trench coat mafia outcasts, they were not taking revenge on, on uh, school bullies. Um, they had coldly planned this for a year. And had they been fully successful in their plans, many more would have died from the bombs that they had made as well. Um, Harris was the mastermind, and he was a classic psychopath. That needs to be emphasized. He, had, he felt no empathy for anyone's, anyone else's pain or grief. But he felt justified in his plot based on his love for Darwinian evolution and natural selection. Police officers investigating this scene in the aftermath found Harris and Claybold's bodies. They found Harris wearing a shirt that had natural selection emblazoned across it. And on his website, he had this rant. He says, you know what I love? Natural selection. It's the best thing that ever happened to the earth. Getting rid of all the stupid and weak organisms, but it's all natural. Now, and he goes on, well, <sighs> natural selection did not make him do this. I want to make that very clear. 
evolution didn't make him do this. He was a psychopath. But what evolution did do was provide the justification for him to do this. It provided the justification. It's all good because evolution, we can just get rid of the stupid and weak organisms. Under the worldview of natural selection, Harris could justify killing stupid and weak organisms as something natural and thus acceptable. No need to worry over judgment to come or even the pain that these inferior organisms might feel. And, you know, we've been telling our kids for 150 years that they came from animals, that they evolved from the animals. And does it surprise us? Why should it surprise us when some of them start taking it seriously and start acting that way? Why does it take us by surprise? Today, we all hear of Hitler's um, program of extermination, uh, but few are aware that his plans were inspired by Darwinian evolution and by America's own secretive eugenics research before World War II. Sir Arthur Keith, a British anthropologist, an atheistic evolutionist, and yet an, an anti-Nazi, uh, drew this chilling conclusion. He says, um, the German Fuhrer, as I have consistently maintained, is an evolutionist. He has consciously sought to make the practice of Germany conform to the theory. So the logical ends to which natural selection and Darwinian evolution takes us is frightening. And, and I'll, I'll make it clear, I have good friends that are evolutionists, very upright and caring people. But the, the and, and, and I've found evolutionists and atheists get upset when you say that you have no basis for uh, morals. They say, no, no, we're very moral people. Yes, you are. But what we're saying is that you have no basis for those morals, according to evolution. The logical ends of evolution, survival of the fittest, uh, are frightening, can be frightening. They all tell us that we are not of divine origin, but of natural. And um, it should be pointed out what the full title for Darwin's book is. It is The Origin of Species by, mean, by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Did you know that in the 1940s, you could purchase a license from the British High Commissioner in Australia to hunt Aborigines? On what grounds? On the grounds that they were evolutionary inferior organisms. Darwinian evolution condemned them to death. Today, we look at them all, we can see them dressed up in their traditional outfits, their rituals, um, and you know, whether weekends or whenever they're doing this, and then during the week we'll see them dressed up in suit and tie for their, uh, to teach as professors in their colleges. Um, today we'll be ashamed of, with what we did, and we would recognize that the differences that we see between aboriginals of Australia or wherever it may be, and someone like myself, very Caucasian, really only amounts to the genetic variability that's built into the gene pool. It's not a matter of evolution. We're not superior one to another because of our race. But the Bible tells us, Hebrews 1.11, Jesus, for which cause he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brethren. 
It doesn't matter what race you are. Jesus, it doesn't matter how well you have your life together or how much it's falling apart. The Bible tells us Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. He's not ashamed because he loves you. He's not ashamed to be human with us. So we see that the Bible teaches that we are a special creation of God, valued as valued children, valued so much that he sent his son to die for us. And that was prophesied all the way back in the beginning in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve fell. God speaks to the, woman, to the serpent, I will put enmity, war or hatred, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God predicted that the woman's seed, the Messiah, would um, inflict a deadly wound upon um, the serpent um, and that he would be wounded likewise. Um, and in all of this, this is an example of something that I think gives even more credence to the Bible, and that is prophecy. And this simple prophecy was given at the very beginning, but we see that the prophecies throughout the Bible tell us some beautiful things about the Messiah. Because one thing we're going to learn tonight is if Jesus is who he says he is, then we are more than mere apes. Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, predicted, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Jesus was predicted as coming forth from a virgin 700 years before he was born. Um, Micah, contemporary to Isaiah, told us where he would be born, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for, for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, who's going, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Um, what is fascinating here is that Mary and Joseph, Jesus' mother and stepfather, um, were residents of Nazareth. But Jesus said he would, the, the prophecy said he'd be born in Bethlehem. And as it turned out, under Caesar Augustus' um, taxation, they had to go to the, the city of their origin and go to Bethlehem, and that's where he was born. This prophesied 700 years before Christ. And even if you don't accept the, that date of 700 years, the Dead Sea Scrolls have shown us that these prophecies were at least, at least 150 years before Christ, because the oldest copies in the Dead Sea Scrolls, these are included in there, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are dated at 150 years before Jesus. And one prophecy in the book of Daniel pinpoints the very time of the Messiah. And with such unerring accuracy, so that we wouldn't have to be in doubt if this was indeed, Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Daniel was studying the book of, of Jeremiah as he's a captive in, in Babylon, wondering, would, G, would God, are you going to fulfill your promise to take your people out of Babylonian captivity, uh, where we've been for 70 years, bring us back to Jerusalem, to our beloved city? And as he was praying and confessing the sins of his people, the angel Gabriel appeared to him in vision and told him, that there would be 70 weeks. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Know and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So we are given a prophecy of the Messiah and told that the prophecy out of the 70-week period, after 62 and 7 and 62, or 69 weeks, the Messiah would show up. 
So of these 70 weeks, um, we have to, if you multiply a week times seven, you come up with 490 days. Now I haven't read, I haven't really come across any scholars, biblical scholars, who believe that these are literal days. They all seem to recognize the only way this is going to work is if these represent prophetic days. And um, we will find that in Ezekiel 4.6, we are given a key here. I have appointed you a day for each year. Each day for a year. So the 70 weeks of prophetic time would be 490 literal years. And uh, this is an, a fascinating prophecy here. And when we look at, understand the going forth of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem would be the start of these 70 weeks. That happened with the, with the um, decree given by King Artaxerxes in 457 BC, which gave uh, Israel a chance to go home and establish governance again and uh, help fund the rebuilding of the city. Um, the prophecy said that from the decree from that decree to the Messiah would be 69 weeks. Times 70, that would be 400, or times 7, that would be 483 days or 483 literal years. So if we look at this decree to rebuild Jerusalem, starting in 457 BC, if we were to count forward in time, it brings us 483 years, it brings us to the year the Messiah, the Prince, would, be, would come on the scene in AD 27. Now, if, if you're quick on math and you're sitting here, well, that doesn't add up, it should be AD 26. Let me show you what's going on here. There is no zero year in BC, in the crossover from BC to AD. So if I wanted to go forward nine years from 5 BC, you'd think, well, that should be 4 AD. But watch this. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It's five. AD. So you actually have to add a year. That's why it's 27 AD. What happened in 27 AD? Well, um, as we look at this, we need to keep in mind that the Messiah, the Prince, would come. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ, Christos, is the Greek word that simply means the anointed one. The Messiah would be anointed in AD 27. And we find in Acts chapter 10, verse 39, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. So uh, when did that anointing take place? Luke 33, verse 1 tells us, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon, the, upon him. And a voice came from heaven, and so, which said, You are my beloved Son, and in you I am well pleased. So Jesus received the Holy Spirit. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism in 27 AD. And um, the date there, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, gives us another confirmation um, that this indeed was 27 AD, because his reign began in AD 12. So, <clears throat> that, leads, that brings us up to the 69 weeks. What about that 70th week? Well, um, we see that in AD 27, and you go seven weeks forward, or seven, day, seven years forward, that's going to bring us to AD 34. What is happening in this time? Well, the prophecy tells us in Daniel 9. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause sacrifice and oblations to cease. 
This is a prophecy of the Messiah. I have seen people try to make it a prophecy of the Antichrist in the end time, but this is very clearly a prophecy of the Messiah, and I'll show you why. Um, in the midst of the 70 weeks, which would be in the middle of that time, would be the spring of AD 31, um, would be Christ's crucifixion. His ministry was for three and a half years, and in the middle of that time, he was crucified. Mark tells us in Mark 15, 38, the veil of the temple was torn in, in twain in two from top to bottom at Jesus' death. The veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, four-inch thick cloth veil, an unseen hand tore it from top to bottom, signifying that the sacrifices, the animal sacrifices, were pointless now. Jesus, the real sacrifice, that all these pointed forward to was, uh, had, had, had died, had been sacrificed. So indicating that the sacrifices, the oblations, the offerings were done. They, they, were, they were finished. All of this, all those sacrificial uh, system in the Old Testament pointed forward to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 3 tells us, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So Jesus spoke the covenant. He spoke the salvation to us. And the disciples, after his death, after those first three and a half weeks, they continue, or three and a half years, continued to confirm the covenant with Israel. Um, and so... We have this timeline here that brings us down to the very time of Jesus' um, anointing as Messiah and his very death. And it was a very, uh, it was, it nailed it to the T. He was born, he was crucified on the 14th day of the first month in AD 31, first Jewish month, um, in the middle of the 70th week. And with that crucifixion, he put an end to the sacrifice and oblations. And, um, it's an exact fulfillment. Friends, there are many other prophecies concerning Christ. Um, prophecies about his betrayal by one of his closest disciples. Um, the price of which he would be betrayed, 30 pieces of silver. Uh, his crucifixion between two thieves. His burial in a rich man's tomb. And his resurrection. In fact, there are over 300 prophecies in the in messianic prophecies in the Bible that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So we indeed... Contrary to evolution, the Bible is not a mere human book. Prophecy gives us a very strong evidence that even if science shows us something that doesn't, uh, that we may not have an immediate answer for, prophecy, we don't, science doesn't have an answer for prophecy, except to try to deny it. But prophecy tells us this word, this Bible that we have, um, that we have, that has been handed down to us, is indeed the word of God. We can trust it. And when it tells us that we um, were created by God, we did not evolve from apes, we can trust that too. Only Jesus Christ fulfills those, the messianic prophecies to a T. As I said earlier, if you and I, if we are mere, uh, if well, if Jesus is who he claims to be, the Messiah, the Son of God, then you and I are more than mere apes. We are, uh, we are the product of God. 
And if we are more than mere apes, then killing and harming others is not natural, as Harris wrote. And this means that we are accountable to God for our actions, for our words, and for our thoughts, or even our attitudes. In short, we're in trouble. If you really are honest with yourself, you realize, I'm in trouble if I have to stand before God. Um, for just as we saw last night, Adam and Eve brought death and destruction in pain and suffering into this world through their sin and disobedience. We too are subject to sin and death. Our own sin condemns us. But Romans tells us in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. By the way, if, if Jesus is not, well, if we evolve from the apes, then death predated Adam and Eve. And then death is not the result of sin. And therefore, we don't need a Savior to save us from our sins. But the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You and I are in trouble by our sins, but God offers us the gift of eternal life for free. And he goes on to say, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The whole point of Jesus Christ becoming one of us was to reconcile us to God through his life and death, paying the penalty that you and I deserve. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even as I told you the other night, when you look at the Bible, God doesn't come to us in our successes. When we have our acts together, he doesn't wait for us to get our acts together to come to him and, and then he'll accept us and enter into covenant with us. Biblically, you see that God confronted people in their failures and said, here, let me enter into covenant with you. Let me show you what I can do now. You've come to the end of your rope. Your rope. You have no more resources to do these things. Let me show you what I can do. What grace God shows us, that while we were yet sinners, while we were still weak, Christ died for us. How antithetical to the theories of evolution, survival of the fittest. Friends, the Bible tells us Jesus is inviting each of us. He is knocking on our heart's door. I would hope that in this series that you have heard his voice, his voice of reason, his, his voice of love. And so as we, um, as we bring this to a close right now, uh, I just want to ask the ushers to go ahead and pass out the card. I, just, I, just, I want some feedback. I want to know how well I'm doing here. Um, but it, maybe you've been here and you, you're seeing that, wow, my eyes have been opened. I realize there is, there is good evidence to believe, to believe the Bible, to believe that God exists, to believe the creation story. And maybe you're sitting here realizing that, wow, um, I actually want to get to know this God as a result of what I've been learning. I, I, you realizing I need a Savior. I want to give you an opportunity just to, to note that, just so I can know where you're coming from and how well I'm doing and communicating here. So as they're passing out the cards, uh, I believe just about everybody has one now. Um, just look at this tonight. It says, my response tonight this series has established and or reaffirmed my faith in the Bible. If that is true, you would just give a check to that. The next item there is, I believe Jesus is the Messiah foretold in the New Testament. You've 
you've seen, or in the Old Testament, foretold in the Old Testament. If this presentation has, has brought to you that realization, Jesus is the one that was predicted of in the scriptures. He is the Messiah. Just check that. Third, I would like to give my life to Jesus and accept him as my savior. Maybe what you have been uh, learning here has, has brought you face to face with your need for a savior and with the hope that Jesus loves you and he has given his life for you, and he wants to take your sins. He wants to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He wants to take your guilt. He wants to cleanse your heart. He wants to give you new life from within. And that is your heart's desire. You just check that there. Or perhaps you're coming here saying, you know, I, I knew Jesus once, but I've drifted away. And I choose to recommit my life to him. Maybe the, the facts here and the, the Bible studies here have brought you to the realization that um, you, you want to come back to Jesus. I would encourage you to check that. And finally, I would like to have someone visit with me about my decision. Maybe you have questions. Maybe you just like some, uh, some affirmation about your decision for Jesus Christ. If you would check that. And make sure you put your name and some contact information so that we can get in touch with you. And... Uh, then I, when you're ready, I would just, yeah, let's close with prayer. And then we can pass those and out to the, to the edges, and then we will um, have the drawing. So let us bow our heads for prayer. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your loving kindness. I thank you for giving us Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You didn't let us just evolve. You got personal. You made us. And when we've blown it, You've offered us eternal life as a gift through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus. You didn't just get dirty and make us. You came and became one of us. So Jesus, as we've been learning more of Bible truth, as we've been learning more of the, the truths of creation, I ask that you would help us to grow in our relationship with you. Help us to, to trust you more and to see what a wonderful, intimate, and infinite God you are. For this we thank you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.